Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Pretty good. It's a beautiful day. In a week, which I think will be before this episode is published. A week from when we're recording this, half a week before this episode comes out. I'm turning the big three O. That's right. You turn 30 on the 30th. Yep. Just going to crumble into dust, at least <laughs> as far as Hollywood is concerned. <laughs> How are you doing, Ben? Um, well, today I'm doing pretty good. As you said, it's a beautiful day. I will admit that, like, here in COVID times, like, how I'm doing seems to be very unpredictable. Sure. I can be doing very well, and then later in the day, not well at all. And things are like a, a sine wave, you know? It's <laughs> it's just not very consistent. Um, and I've been trying my best, but, like, this past week has felt a little bit rough. We're in this, like, awkward phase right now where things are starting to reopen, right? But everyone is making their own choices about how far they want to go and how far they feel comfortable going. And, you know, there's, there's recommendations and guidelines from the government to follow, but there's also like personal choices you have to make. Right. And like people have been making those personal choices all along, but like back in April, if someone was like, Oh yeah, me and like three friends had like a sleepover where we like exchanged one water bottle between the three of us for 12 hours. You had an orgy. Um, (laughs) <laughs> I would have judged you pretty severely, right? Yeah. But we're getting into this weird phase now where it's like, am am I weird for wanting to be careful? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's it's a little strange and it's hard to, like, avoid feeling like you're offending someone if you're saying, like, no, I don't want to come to your, like, you know, backyard barbecue or whatever. Yeah, it's tough because I feel like our own boundaries Mm -hmm. change on a daily basis as well as the boundaries that are needed in COVID times change fairly quickly. Yeah. And right now, at least in Calgary, we're doing really well, Mm -hmm. but I I worry about when that other shoe is going to drop. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want that other shoe to drop on me. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's going to be a second spike. The hope is just that like everything we've done means it's not that bad, that it's not as big as the first spike, that, like, the healthcare system's ready to receive it, and, yeah, that, like, you or I personally do not get sick, right? And so, because we've been living this way for a few months, to me, it's like, well, what's the difference in just continuing to, you know, be as cautious, right? But then, like, we're all human, and it's definitely true that there are standards that you need to live to that, like, people are willing to break for different things where it's like, well, to see this person though, or to go do this thing though, you know? Um, so I'm doing well today, but it's been up and down. And I think like, it's going to mean for me, I think a return to therapy. Like I, I finished therapy, um, a while back and it was like a very successful 
process for me. And, um, I really felt it helped me a lot. Um, but the way to look at therapy, I think is to see it like, not as an end goal. Yeah. Not as like, well, it's neither something that you should be doing forever for the rest of your life. Like it should have an end goal. You should have goals in therapy, but right? I mean like a one and done. Yes, exactly. Like it's important to have those goals so that you aren't just drifting aimlessly through your therapy, but also to recognize that just because you've gone through it once doesn't mean you never have to do it again. The same way that just because you went to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned one time doesn't mean you never have to come back, right? And I'm thinking that, like... It might be time to get your teeth cleaned. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I recognize that, like, I think a lot of people are in that boat, whether they kind of realize it or not. And there's going to be like a lot of long-term mental health fallout from all of this Mm -hmm. that people aren't expecting, I think. Yeah. Like with all of this stuff opening up right before my 30th birthday, Mm -hmm. like it's definitely not what I thought my 30th birthday would look like, but hey, whatever. At least I'm here to see my 30th birthday. The thing about COVID is you don't really know who has it still, like, we're slowly getting a better idea of, like, how to tell when you have it, you Mm -hmm. know, the symptoms, whatever, keep it from spreading. Yeah. But we have, like, a general idea of, like, here's where it came from. Uh Uh-huh. As opposed to tonight's movie where uh, we definitely know where it came from, outer space. Right. (laughs) Yes, Sarah. Waiting for that other shoe to drop for a while there, but you took the long way, but you got there, and and I'm proud of you. Uh, Yes, today's movie is It Came From Outer Space. So last week, we talked about the rise of 3D as a way to compete with the rise of television. It's 1953, and TV is a thing. Uh, It has stolen a lot of viewership away from movies, And it's, you know, we're right smack dab in what's called the golden age of television. The movie theaters and movie studios are trying to get butts back into seats. And the success of the 3D feature film Buona Devil in 1952 uh, led to all the major studios, you know, trying to get their big 3D movie out. And last week we saw Warner Brothers' effort, House of Wax. So this week's movie, It Came From Outer Space, is Universal International's first 3D film. And if you missed last week or you're bouncing around in the chronology as you listen to these, um, the way that 3D was done for movies in the 50s is very much similar to the way it is done today. Um, If you're picturing the red and blue 3D glasses, those were not used in theaters for 3D movies. Those were for, like, cheap gimmick comic books and things like that, what you were given in a movie theater in the 50s was a set of polarized glasses, similar to what you would get today, and the system worked very similar to today's system with two projectors showing a left image and a right image at different polarizations, and then you wearing glasses that have different Polaroid filters in each lens so that each eye is only seeing one of the two projectors, creating the 3D effect. Now, this is Universal International's first 3D feature. It is also the point when the studio finally embraced the new trend of science fiction. Saw the writing was on the wall and decided to move into the 1950s with everybody (laughs) else. 
Specifically, this is part of the alien invasion subgenre of sci-fi films, which by 1953 had now become the predominant B-movie subgenre. Uh, this started obviously with The Thing from Another World and The Man from Planet X. Those and, are from 51? Yes. And uh, you also have The Day the Earth Stood Still from 51. In 1953, you had a whole ton of these, including... 20th Century Fox's film Invaders from Mars, which came out earlier in the year. Uh, and that was a film that was rushed into production so that it could get the title of being the first alien invasion movie in color. Uh, it had a budget of $290,000. And the goal there was to beat Paramount to theaters as Paramount was working on its $2 million version of War of the Worlds that would mm. come out later in 1953. You also have, of course, like a lot of indie sort of cheap alien invasion B-movies like <laughs> um, 1953's Robot Monster is probably the most infamous, but War of the Worlds is probably the alien invasion subgenre's like ultimate expression. Uh, At least up to this point, because... Mars Attacks is yet to come. I mean, Mars Attacks is a parody of these movies, Sarah. I know, I'm just goofing. Okay. Uh, War of the Worlds would come out in August of 1953, and uh, it came from outer space. This week's movie is a few months earlier. Uh, it is in black and white, unlike House of Wax or War of the Worlds, but it is in 3D. And this film was produced by William Olland who had recently risen through the ranks of Universal's producers, uh, but he didn't start as a movie producer. He was born in 1916 in Delaware, and he got his start in show business when he arrived in Manhattan with $25 in his pocket and met boy wonder Orson Welles. Boy wonder. And became one of the original Mercury players in the Mercury Theater Company. Which, um, at that point, was... Just on stage, or was it radio? Yeah, so yeah. at this point he would have been on stage, but he followed the Mercury Theater into radio and into film. Uh, William Olland actually played Thompson, the barely seen reporter protagonist of Citizen Kane. Oh, neat. During World War II, Olland flew missions as a combat pilot, and upon returning to Los Angeles after the war, he went into producing. Uh, rising up the ranks at Universal from like an associate producer uh, up to a full producer. In 1952, he produced The Black Castle for Universal. Oh, okay. And after that movie came out, he clearly recognized that the studio needed to capitalize on the sci-fi trend in order to stay relevant. So, in order to do this, Alan commissioned a story from an established sci-fi writer who had already made a name for himself in the literary field, Ray Bradbury. Yeah, Ray Bradbury, he's one of the... ABCs of sci-fi, yeah. I think you told me once. Yeah. Uh, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, Arthur C. Clarke are the ABCs of science fiction. Yeah. I think this is the first time that I've talked about an author on the show who died in our lifetime. Sure. Fair enough. Like, yeah. so many other people were, like, born in, like, the 1800s or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Ray Douglas Bradbury was born in 1920 in Waukegan, Illinois, and he lived to be 91 years old until 2012 when he passed away. Yeah, that's really recent. Yeah. Fun fact, the middle name, Douglas, uh, he got, he was named after Douglas Fairbanks, the uh -huh. actor. Sure. That's fun. 
His parents were a Swedish immigrant mother and telephone lineman English immigrant father, and while their, for lack of a better word, home base was Wachigan, throughout the Great Depression, uh, his family would move back and forth, mainly uh, to Tucson, Arizona, mm -hmm. um, trying to find work for his father. When Bradbury was 14, his family settled in L.A., and uh, he was extremely stoked about this. <laughs> Apparently he would go like roller skating down streets hoping to find celebrities and get their autographs. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. It makes him like one of our first major um, creators that we're talking about on the show who like grew up with Hollywood and like was influenced, you know, by Hollywood. Absolutely. I guess he lived down the street from, like, a major theater where a ton of film premieres would happen. And sure. And he learned early on how to sneak in. Gotcha. Yeah, of course. Now, he had started writing at 11 years old, mainly during the Great Depression when there wasn't really much else to do. Sure. <laughs> um, and he frequented the Waukegan Public Library, reading practically anything he could get his hands on, mainly H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, and with Edgar Rice Burroughs, apparently he always liked Tarzan and the John Carter of Mars series the most. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. It's sort of like saying, you know, with George Lucas, I really prefer Star Wars and Indiana Jones. <laughs> so sci-fi, horror, fantasy, these are the things he's consuming yeah. from a young age. His first work as a writer came at age 14, when he sold a joke to George Burns for the Burns <laughs> and Allen radio show. That's fantastic. Good for him. <laughs> Once in L.A., um, he found a mentor in science fiction author Bob Olson, and he joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society at 16 years old. Okay. He read the Astounding Science Fiction Journal and practically everything by Robert Heinlein, Robert C. Clarke, Theodore Sturgeon, and A.E. Van Voigt. It's interesting to think of him as reading and being influenced by these guys when, like... He becomes, like, just as prolific. Well, and, and like, I in some ways think of him as a contemporary of theirs, um, but only because, like, I guess a lot of these guys have very long careers, right? Um, so does Bradbury himself. Oh, for sure. But, you know, because Bradbury, his career sort of has its peak in, like, you know, the 50s and 60s. And a lot of these other guys, like, started in the 30s, but then, like, continue on into the 50s and 60s. It's, it's, I don't know, it's just, like, strange to think of, you know, Bradbury reading Theodore Sturgeon when I know that, like, both of them are going to be still, like, writing stuff, you know, in the 1960s, right, as contemporaries. Yeah, absolutely. What I think is really interesting with him just devouring these works from Arthur C. Clarke, Sturgeon, Voigt, is these guys were heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Thing from Another World and was the editor of that of the magazine that those guys wrote for, and as we noted in that episode, had views that influenced science fiction for a long time. Yes. So you kind of see it trickle down here. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can see the, you know, it's the domino effect of influences, right? And especially when you have influences that get absorbed and then, like, you know... Proliferated. Proliferated, like, uncritically, right? So that you have elements in things so that, like, you know, 
as late as 1999 in like Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace, you have characters who are the descendants of like Yellow Peril characters of the 1930s or like minstrel characters of the 1930s because of that like chain of influences not being like critically examined, right? Absolutely. Now, Bradbury's first published story came in 1938. Uh, he was 18 years old, and this is when he contributed to Forrest J. Ackerman's mm-hmm. fanzine, Imagination. <laughs> Forrest J. Ackerman is probably someone whose name we're going to start saying with more and more frequency. Um, he's kind of like the fan of science fiction. Sure. He kind of invented being a sci-fi fan in some ways, like... He he's probably most famous for his um, fanzine, um, famous monsters of Filmland, but he also had like a huge collection of film memorabilia and like really influenced both creators and fans for decades. Absolutely, um, fun story at a party of Ackerman's. Um, Bradbury uh, met eighteen-year-old Ray Harryhausen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they just kicked off a great friendship. They bonded over King Kong, the 1949 Fountainhead adaptation, and bonded so much that Roy Harryhausen was Bradbury's best man at his wedding in 1947. That's right. And um, Harryhausen's big breakthrough movie, uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, is an adaptation of a Bradbury short story, The Lighthouse. Yeah, that is true. Um, Yeah, all of these guys... They're just a bunch of nerds. Right, well, it's... it's and I say that lovingly. Yeah, I mean, they're all living in L.A. at the same time, so of course they're all hanging out. I think I hadn't realized how young Bradbury was, is the thing. Okay. Like... Because, yeah, he, he they're the same age. Mm-hmm. But, like, knowing, you know, that, like, how old, say, like, Asimov was publishing his stuff in, like, the 40s and 50s versus Bradbury, like, I didn't realize that Bradbury was, like, a kid in comparison. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bradbury published his own fanzine, Futuria Fantasia, (laughs) at 18 years old, which had four issues. (laughs) Um, When World War II came around, Bradbury was rejected for service due to his bad eyesight, Um, but that did allow him to focus in on his writing career, becoming a full-time writer at age 24 in 1944. So, overall, he wrote 27 novels and over 600 short stories. Mm -hmm. His first novel was in 1950, The Martian Chronicles. Yeah, and that's... And that's considered a novel because that's how he sold it. (laughs) But how it was sold is quite interesting. He went to New York, was trying to, like, sell some short stories, and everyone was like, no, we want a novel. And So he was complaining to an editor friend of his, and his editor friend was like, well, why don't you take those short stories and put them all together into a novel? Yeah. And so that's what he did. Yeah, The Martian (laughs) Chronicles is is basically a gussied-up short story anthology. Uh, A lot of sci-fi writers used that trick at the time. That's like like Asimov's first big book is iRobot, which is a short story collection that's just been sort of like had all the stories tied together, so it's one thing. Um, they call that a fix-up. Yeah. Um, now, The Martian Chronicles is about um, humans colonizing Mars after Earth was destroyed by atom bombs. Yep. His second novel came in 1953, this year, and it's Fahrenheit 451. Yes, which 
you know, if you went to high school in the United States, you're probably familiar with. <laughs> as you said before, Ray Bradbury had definitely established himself as a writer. Um, you might not get that impression with only having like two novels out, but he has three collections of short stories out already. 1947's Dark Carnival, which includes the short story Homecoming, which was published in Mademoiselle magazine after being spotted in the slush pile by editor assistant Truman Capote. <laughs> um, 1951's The Illustrated Man, which you could consider science fiction um, with the kind of theme about coal technology versus like humanity. And then 1953's The Golden Apples of the Sun. So that's three collections. All in all, by 1953, and I counted this, he had nearly 220 short stories published. And he's 33 years old. Right. Out of that 600 that you were talking about earlier. Yes. Yeah, at this point, like, when he gets brought on to work on this movie, you know, he's being brought on because he's a noteworthy sci-fi author. But Fahrenheit 451 hasn't come out yet. So he's not yet, like... Ray Bradbury. You know, he's not someone whose name you're going to put on the poster. Yeah. He's just someone who you're going to give a job to. Exactly. Right? Now, it's interesting that you bring up Fahrenheit 451 and, and Bradbury being a science fiction author, because according to this interview in 1999 with Weekly Alibi, he says he's not a science fiction writer. Huh. He says, first of all, I don't write science fiction. I've only done one science fiction book, and that's Fahrenheit 451 based on reality. Science fiction is a depiction of the real. Fantasy is a depiction of the unreal. So Martian Chronicles is not science fiction, it's fantasy. So I, I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I would I would disagree with his classification there, but I also like acknowledge that there is a thin line. Yeah, there's a it it gets blurry there on the spectrum from science fiction to fantasy in places, right? Like you come around to things like, well, what do you call Star Wars, right? Yeah, a lot of people would call that space opera, but, like, you could argue it's science fiction because it's, like, space technology stuff. There's robots, which yeah. are, is, like, a similar thing. But and you hear the you, term... You feel a difference between Star Trek and yes. Star Wars. Like, they're clearly two different things, yeah. You hear the term um, science fantasy mm -hmm. being thrown around. As I said, he passed away in 2012 at 91 after kind of a long illness. He had a stroke in 1999, um, but, you know, 91 is a pretty good age. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and he was still publishing stuff all through, like, even, like, in 2004, in the mid-2000s. Like, he's yeah. a prolific guy. He has a, a very long career. He's a big deal. He's a big deal. Very big deal, Bradbury. Mm-hmm. So... As you said, he was commissioned to write this story. This isn't like a direct adaptation of one of his works. Um, apparently, the working title for the story that he wrote was The Meteor. But as that story exists for Bradbury, um, it's not published anywhere. It's not included in any collections. So it's, you know, that was just the title for what he submitted as a treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, there are people who suggest that that story later became the short story A Matter of Taste, which was a short story unpublished until its inclusion in the 2004 collection The Cat's Pajamas. Hmm. 
Now, it's the only science fiction short story in that collection, and it's, uh, it's like, pretty late in his life, so I suspect it was like, oh, hey, we haven't published this thing yet. Let's right. put it in here. Um, and it's about a planet of spiders. Uh, like, seven-foot-tall spiders. Peaceful society, but they're all spiders. And these human astronauts land, and they are going to make first contact with these spiders, but are, like, repulsed because they're, they're fucking spiders, Ben. Right. And so the humans, like, despite the fact that the spiders are, like, peaceful and intelligent and have a society, uh, the humans are still considering killing them because they're fucking spiders, Ben. <laughs> so that's the story. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Which makes me concerned about what it is that came from outer space. Well, Because if it's a fucking giant spider, we're going to have some problems, so Benjamin. there's no spiders in this movie, Sarah. Okay. At least no giant alien spiders. Okay. Uh, but you are very much proving Bradbury's point in that story. And, I know. Uh, the central element that gets uh, used in this movie, which is the human capacity for irrational fear based on something looking strange or or not attractive. I, listen, we know I have arachnophobia. Yep. Personally, I, I am also very scared of space, so I wouldn't be one of these astronauts anyway. So don't put that guilt on me about wanting to eradicate this planet of spiders. So Bradbury wrote a number of story treatments for this movie, um, he submitted two basic versions of the story. Uh, one with malevolent invading aliens, and another with aliens who were neither the malevolent aliens of, like, Thing from Another World, nor the benevolent aliens of Day of the Earth Stood Still. They were just aliens, and they don't really care about us one way or another. Uh, and that was ultimately the idea the studio went with, which Bradbury was very happy about because he felt it was the more interesting of the two ideas. Um, he wrote, as I said, a number of versions of the, of the treatment. And the thing to understand, if you don't know what a story treatment is for film, it basically reads like a short story, um, just usually without dialogue, except for maybe like important, significant lines. But it's written in prose. It's not written in like a screenplay format. Um... And so Bradbury wrote that, was paid, oh, I want to say like $3,000 or something like that for it. Um, and then uh, screenwriter Henry Essex was brought in to flesh it out into a screenplay. Now, Bradbury's story treatment was so long and <laughs> so detailed and so fleshed out already that Essex would later categorize his role as simply being like, Someone who came in, put it into screenplay format, and added dialogue, essentially. But Henry Essex is actually someone whose writing we've seen before on the show. He wrote the story for Man-Made Monster way back in 1941. And he had to put his writing career on hold uh, for World War II. After the war ended, he returned to writing and wrote a number of late 1940s noirs and also directed his own script for the 1953 film noir Mike Hammer film, I, the Jury. The directing job for It Came From Outer Space fell to 37-year-old Jack Arnold, who was best known at that time for his documentary filmmaking. Interesting choice, then. Arnold had started out as an actor 
studying at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and appearing on Broadway beginning in 1935. But when Pearl Harbor was attacked, Arnold abandoned the stage to enlist in the Army. He was assigned to the Signal Corps, where he was placed under the wing of legendary documentary filmmaker Robert Flatterty and given a crash course in cinematography shooting military films. Arnold would go on to direct a number of documentary shorts after the war ended, which ultimately would lead to a documentary feature film called With These Hands, about factory working conditions in the early 20th century, which was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. He was then hired by Universal Pictures, who put him to work directing the B-film noir Girls in the Night. (laughs) It Came From Outer Space would be Arnold's second fiction feature film. (laughs) Oh, well, gotta start somewhere, I guess. Does he go on to stay with fiction, or does he head back to documentary land? No, he he goes on to be very well known as a director of 1950s science fiction films for Universal. Um, Luckily, he liked the genre. He grew up with it as a kid. Now, the film's 3D cinematography and special effects photography fell to cameraman Clifford Stein, who got his start as a special effects cameraman operating the second camera for the stop-motion photography for King Kong. Nice, good for him. And had a solid two decades of work under his belt when he came in to do It Came From Outer Space. So he shoots the movie with the 3D and also does all the special effects photography for this. Now for the look of the aliens in the film, Universal's makeup department was engaged to create the design for whatever is coming from outer space. More carrot men? To remind you, the head of the makeup department at this time was Bud Westmore, who had assumed that post following the ousting of Jack Pierce in 1956. Uh, Westmore himself having been basically promoted from PRC to Universal when those studios were both under the control of the rank organization. Now, while Westmore would be credited on screen in this movie because he was the head of the makeup department, the actual design work, uh, if not, like, the construction work, but the actual design work for the aliens was done by concept artist Millicent Patrick. And Millicent Patrick, like, I don't know if the, the term concept artist really existed, back then, but it's certainly what we would call her job now. Cool. She was born Mildred Elizabeth Fulva de Rossi in 1915, and her father was the superintendent of construction at San Simeon, working on the continual building project that was Hearst Castle under architect Julia Morgan. (laughs) Asterisk, see Citizen Kane. Right, yeah. Mildred, for her part, uh, studied art Uh, and began working for the Walt Disney Company in 1939 in their all-female ink and paint department. In 1940, she was promoted to special effects animation, becoming one of the studio's first female animators, creating the design for the demon Chernabog in Fantasia. Dope. That's the demon that's kind of based off of uh, Bela Lugosi's rotoscoping? Yeah, in the Bald Mountain segment. She married animator Paul Fitzpatrick after having an affair with him, which did lead to his wife committing suicide when he refused to end the affair. Oh. And then, um... Sounds like a real winner. 
after that marriage, um, she would divorce Fitzpatrick and leave the Disney studio and change her name to Millicent Patrick instead of Fitzpatrick. She realized that she can do a lot better than that kind of asshole. I mean, I don't know. I don't know, like, you're reading a lot into this guy's characterization. Okay. I'm working with what you've given me. Right, which is that he had an affair with this girl, and then when he said he wouldn't end the affair, his wife committed suicide. Yeah. Okay. What an asshole. (laughs) Grant the lady a divorce. Well, I don't know if that was part of the question. The question was, leave her or stay with me, and he said, I won't leave her, and then she killed herself. I don't think there was, like... I don't... I don't know. Listen, I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I don't know. This was many years ago. These people are all dead now. When she left Disney, she went to work under her new name as a uh, promotional model. So appearing at, like, trade shows and in magazines as, like, the sexy girl standing next to the car. Yeah, booth babe. Right. From there, she started a career acting in, like, small roles in movies like, you know unnamed secretary who gets uncredited kind of roles in movies, right? Okay. On one such job on a Universal film, Bud Westmore spotted her sketchbook and invited her to join his makeup department, becoming the first woman to work in special effects makeup. That's dope. Good for her. Westmore and Patrick presented two possible designs for the aliens. The rejected design went on to be used for the famous Metaluna mutant in This Island Earth uh, two years later. Arnold was insistent that the look of the aliens be kept secret. Actors signed what were called secrecy pledges. So NDAs. Yes, they just didn't have have that. that. Yeah, in the 1950s. Um, So they were sworn not to reveal the aliens' appearance, and the actual, like... Aliens themselves were created, shot, and then destroyed all in one day in order to preserve the secret. Wow, that's intense. Have we had a movie that's been, like, this intense about that? No, no one's given a shit before. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) The film's lead actor is Richard Carlson, who played the romantic lead in The Amazing Mr. X back in 1948. Since then, he's appeared in a number of films, including the 1950 remake of King Solomon's Mines and the indie sci-fi film The Magnetic Monster, earlier in 1953. (laughs) He just likes to be called Magneto, guys. (laughs) Carlson's co-star, 26-year-old Barbara Rush, had made her screen debut in 1950 and also appeared in the 1951 sci-fi epic When Worlds Collide, produced by George Powell, but it was her role in this film that earned her a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer. Nice. She would go on to a very long career in television. Uh, most recently, she was one of the grandmothers on the TV show Seventh Heaven. Oh, God. That, no, that show isn't still going, is it? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, but Barbara Rush is. She's 93 years old. Oh, good for her. In a supporting role in this film is a 29-year-old actor named Russell Johnson, who was a bomber plane navigator in World War II who used the GI Bill to pay for his acting classes after the war. (laughs) He appeared in a variety of B-movies throughout the 1950s, but he is best known today for his role as the Professor on the 1960s sitcom Gilligan's Island, Mm. a character who famously could make a radio out of a coconut but couldn't fix a hole in a boat. 
Listen, manholes are hard. <laughs> it Came From Outer Space was released on May 27th, 1953. It garnered, like, mild critical acclaim. Uh, the tone you get from the contemporary reviews is basically like, this is really good for, you know, a science fiction movie. Sure. Uh, but it was a box office success, making $1.6 million against its budget of $800,000. Today, it is available on Blu-ray in 2D and 3D from Universal, and you can also get it on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. So this is maybe a good point for me to put it out there. We've had the discussion in the Thing from Another World episode, um, and Man from Planet X, but... Obviously, right now, there's going to be a lot of discussion of, is this horror or is this sci-fi? Or is it both, which it can be. Yeah. Um, how how do you know that this is horror versus some of these other science fiction movies you've pointed out, like, when worlds collide or whatever? Well, I mean, a lot of this is you have to evaluate it on a case-by-case basis, right? And it comes back to what we've talked about over and over again on our show about, like, What's the emotion the movie is trying to elicit? Is it a movie about fear? Is it a movie that's trying to make the audience afraid? Is it, uh, you know, trying to scare us? And if so, how, right? And are the characters people who are, like, enduring or surviving, like, a harrowing situation? Or are they, like, Flash Gordon with a ray gun on his belt going out to shoot Ming the Merciless or whatever, right? Like, um, a lot of these films, though, blur that line, right? Like, some of these films have monsters in them like uh this island earth you know because the aliens are usually portrayed as monstrous uh but just because the alien is portrayed as monstrous doesn't mean it's horror if it's more of like an adventure story even if the alien itself is supposed to be scary looking right so a lot of this has to be judged on like a case-by-case basis and we'll probably like get it wrong here or there and have some movies that end up on the miscellaneous list Mm -hmm. because of that or we might skip movies that listeners are like no that's that should be horror and you know that's what the appeals box on the tumblr is for right um if we were doing a podcast on the history of sci-fi movies we would definitely be covering like a hundred percent of these but we're doing horror and not every 1950s sci-fi movie is a horror movie but not every 1950s horror movie is sci-fi. It's definitely a decade where those two genres are intermingling. So why are we watching this movie? What is it about this movie that you've seen so far that tells you this is horror? This is a movie about the reaction that these people have to the presence of aliens among them, which is a reaction of, like, fear and paranoia. Okay, cool. Hey, for fear and paranoia, social context setting... Check out our episode on The Thing from Another World, where I talk about the Cold War. Oh yeah, the Cold War's happening right now? If you didn't know, it's 1953. Look up the Cold War. Yeah, or you know, listen to episode 155 on The Thing from Another World. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, Ben has told you how to watch It Came from Outer Space, so hopefully you can watch along with us. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back we will discuss It Came from Outer Space from 1953, directed by Jack Arnold. See you on the other side, everybody.
welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching It Came From Outer Space from 1953, directed by Jack Arnold. Ben, what did you think? Um, I have kind of mixed feelings, to be honest. But I will say, if you have a picture in your mind of what, like, a 1950s bug-eyed monster outer space invasion sci-fi b-movie is and you want to watch a movie that like matches that picture like scene for scene and line for line this is probably your movie yeah i think the alien design isn't bug-eyed monster in the quite the same sense that someone might Mm, imagine sure um it's something that you would not expect i think that's true but i think like this definitely feels like the template for a certain kind of movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. Which is sort of an odd thing to say because I think this movie actually kind of copies a movie we've already seen, kind of like beat for beat. Which movie is that? Man from Planet X. Oh. Um, but yeah, we can kind of talk about that more later um but let's let's talk about the story of it came from outer space first and listener maybe you can spot the similarities as sarah tells you the story well spoiler alert it came from outer space right (laughs) to set the scene we are in sand rock arizona it's a peaceful town and out on the outskirts is amateur astronomer and author John Putnam. Mm-hmm. He's having a cozy date night with his girlfriend Ellen uh, when a large meteor crashes into the desert. Now, a neighbor of his is a guy who has a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> so they go, and they go to check out the, um, the crater and see what this, like, what happened. Because um, it, like, lit up the night sky. It wasn't just a falling star. Now, John goes down alone, and he finds a spherical spaceship that looks kind of like a golf ball, mm-hmm. maybe, or a soccer ball. Yeah. Just, like, kind of like that. And it's uh, right into the side of the crater. And he also finds what looks to be a trail of glitter <laughs> leading out of the crater. When he finds the spaceship, the door closes... And whoever closed that door just kind of slammed it shut, like, oh shit, someone's coming, because it causes a landslide. Now, this landslide covers the ship, so when everyone else arrives, they don't believe John. They think maybe he has been hit on the head with one of these rocks, and he's kind of mocked by the local sheriff and reporters. Ellen isn't really sure whether to believe John or not, But she tries to help investigate what's going on anyways. As they were driving, they run into some local telephone linemen, which if you recall, that's what Bradbury's dad did. Right. uh, Out in Tucson, Arizona. Yes. And um, one of them is hearing, like, weird sounds on the telephone lines. Um, We don't get to hear what those sounds are. Unless it was, like... The only thing I could think of is because he puts the, the receiver to his ear and we hear some, like, you know, 1950s sci-fi Theremin? soundtrack, like, on, you know, and I'm like, are we supposed to think that the, like... Theremin is, like, diegetic? Right, exactly. 
Frank and George, the two telephone linemen, they head, for lack of a better word, upstream <laughs> uh, from the telephone line to see what's up there to investigate the source of this strange sound, while John and Ellen head downstream. And we see Frank and George get attacked by a creature in the desert. John and Ellen are driving and they're like, hmm, nothing's here. My uh, plot senses are telling me it's time to turn around and check up on Frank and George. So they turn around and do that. They find the truck abandoned and a trail of blood. And following it, um, we see from the alien's point of view something come up behind Ellen and form itself into a hand. And the creature, the alien, has turned into Frank. Now... John and Ellen can tell something's a little odd about Frank because he's speaking in kind of a distant, dazed way. Um, There's also a special effect put onto the voice to make it clear that, like, he's not just sounding like he did in past scenes. So John and Ellen are like, fuck, what is going on? And that's when John spots a dead body from behind a rock. You just see the hand lying there. He's like, great, well, we're going to head back to town. Uh, not to report any kind of murder or foul play or anything. <laughs> Bye. After John and Ellen leave, uh, the creature turns and we see the real Frank and George kind of like waking up after being like knocked out. And they're like, the, f- the fuck? There's, there's two Franks. And alien Frank says, do not be afraid. You will be unharmed. We can replicate your form, but not your soul. Just in case the Breen office <laughs> was, was worried upset. about things. John and Ellen get back to town and they're like, Sheriff, there's like weird shit going on. I know you didn't believe me about the spaceship, but th- there's a murder that's happened. Um, we have evidence that there's like weird shit going on. But when they get back out to the desert, nothing's there. Even the truck is gone. But the sheriff starts to change his tune. When that night, George's wife and Frank's girlfriend come into the station saying, like, yeah, the boys were being really weird and distant and said they had to, like, work overnight or something, and something's weird. So the sheriff finally begins to believe John. Ellen takes the girls home, so Sheriff and John are left to kind of theorize about, like, what is going on. Like, are the aliens maybe, like using electrical equipment for something, um, because the telephone wires, and oh hey, the local like hardware shop was broken into, and meanwhile, Ellen has finished dropping off the girls, and is driving home herself, when she is stopped by an alien impersonating George, and is attacked. Also, some men in a mine near the crash site were also attacked. Yeah, yeah. People are being attacked and taken off screen, and and spooky, foggy, ooga-booga, theremin stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. John sees aliens, Frank and George, in town, so he confronts them, and they're like, do not interfere, the people are safe, leave us alone, give us time. Time for what? Give us time. Mm-hmm. Okay. But after Ellen gets taken, um, John and the sheriff are like, okay, no, we can't, we can't be having this. Suddenly, John gets a phone call at the sheriff's department, and it's the aliens. <laughs> saying it out loud is hilarious. It's the aliens saying, come meet us in the desert, blah, blah, blah. So he does, 
and Ellen, who is suddenly now in a black, sexy, slinky dress, takes him to the mine, and um, in the dark, we hear the aliens explain, like, we're repairing our ship, give us till, like, the next day, and we'll be, we'll be out of your hair, and everyone is fine. And John's like, well, how am I supposed to, like, tell everyone that everything's fine unless, like, I have some assurances? Like, at least show me what you look like. And the aliens are like, nah, bro, you don't want that. And John's like, no, I think I do. So then the alien comes out, and you see the alien, um, you've seen the alien throughout the movie, but this is kind of like the time to see the alien. Anytime that we've seen the alien, you see a single eyeball first, and then it kind of moves towards the camera, out of the darkness of the mine, and you see the rest of the body, and it kind of looks like a big Dungeons and Dragons beholder, mm. but instead of tentacles, it's long gray hair, like a big gray old beholder, and it's either like floating, or if it walks, it walks with the hair, and when it has been attacking people, we have seen like a fuzzy, white, hairy arm or like gassy arm come mm-hmm. around the people. So it's clear that like they're maybe part gaseous. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the impression I got. Yeah, but definitely something that you you would not be expecting. It's really um, effectively like alien. It's not absolutely you know something with two arms and two legs and a bumpy forehead. Like it's it's a totally bizarre alien design, which was really cool. Yeah. So John makes it back to the sheriff and he's like visibly shaken from what he just saw. And he's like, okay, sheriff, like we just got to give them time. Like it'll be fine. And the sheriff's like, yeah, but, and John's like, don't worry about it. Back at the sheriff's office, sheriff's like, nah, man, I can't work. Like I, I, I can't take it anymore. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. (laughs) And John's like, no, but Really, like, they're going to hurt people if you do something. Um, and then they see Alien George walking down the street. And the sheriff's like, that son of a bitch walking in our town. I don't even know who else could be an alien. It could be you. It could be me. It could be anyone. And <laughs> uh, the sheriff grabs a gun and he's going out to confront George and, and like, any other aliens he perceives and to stop him from Interfering with the aliens, John gives him a good right hook. So they, they get into a little scuffle. But that's when you know the sheriff, he leaves and he rounds up a posse because he's stopping these aliens. Don't care what you say, John, I'm doing this. So John hops in a car and is speeding to the mine to warn the aliens and be like, hey, like I can't stop them. There's some action with the speeding cars, the sheriff taking a a shortcut through the desert to stop George and his truck and, like, shooting it and having it explode into the side of a cliff. Um, but meanwhile, uh, John makes it to the mine, and sexy alien Ellen is there, and she's like, we can't trust you. You've led them right to us. And he's like, no, I came to warn you. And she's like, the time for talk is gone. And, and shoots a laser at him with a special, like, laser tool. He ends up having to shoot her. It's very sad. He continues further into the mine and comes across the spaceship with the rest of the aliens. 
Um, now all of these aliens, we see them in their, like, shape-shifted human bodies, and they're working on the ship. And then he sees an alien who has taken the form of John himself. None of the hostages are in sight. And alien John says that we crashed here by accident, we wanted to explore the galaxy, but you guys weren't ready for anything like this, uh, so we're going to destroy the ship, and then destroy Earth, possibly. It's unclear what's at stake here. And John's like, no, but like, I'll, I'll, I'll calm the posse down. Let me take the hostages, and I'll calm them down. And the alien's like, how can I trust you? And John's like, well, you can always blow up the Earth if I fail. And the alien John is like, okay. So John takes out the hostages uh, with some dynamite. They blow up the entrance to the mine shaft to stop the posse from coming. And the sheriff goes, ah, dynamite. Aliens are defeated. Suddenly, the Earth starts to shake. And the spaceship takes off from the crater back across the stars. And Ellen goes, John, John, will they be back? Oh, God. And John's like, yeah, they will be back. We weren't ready right now. We're too angry and too destructive. But they'll be back. The end. So, yeah, it's <laughs> it's the man from Planet X. It's basically the same... Plot beats. Plot beats, yeah. Uh, the specifics are, like, different, but the basic plot beats of, like, alien ship crashes here, you know... Kidnapping people. to repair the ship. Uh, the lead character is, like, a writer who has to, like, team up with the local sheriff to, like, rescue the hostages, you know, and then the alien, like, leaves at the end or whatever. Um, very, very similar plot beats here. Um, in case it wasn't clear, because I didn't really say this outright, the reason they were taking people's identities is so they could go into town and not be, like, disturbing people. Yeah, also, yeah. their appearance is horrific to our eyes. So yeah, yeah. they were like, yeah, we, we don't want to draw attention to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, so that they could, like, get equipment and stuff. Yeah, I just thought it would be good to, like, outline mm, that. Sure. Yeah, I have um, kind of mixed feelings on this movie. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool stuff in it. I think... As we already said, the design of the aliens is really impressive. Um, I really like the point of view shots we got with them. Because it's kind of like, you know, we're following them, but over the lens, like over the camera, is almost like a a lens as if we're looking through, um, like, some kind of, like, goggles or something. I mean, I think it's supposed to give us the sense of, because the most noticeable design element on the aliens is their big central eye. So mm-hmm. I think it's just supposed to, like, let you know, like, hey, we're seeing out of that big... Central eye. eye. Yeah, because it's just kind of like a bubble over yeah. the lens. And I feel like um, that would be very effective in 3D, because yes. that you could make that feel closer to everything else. Yeah. Yeah, and then when the alien's coming at you, that eye comes first, you know, before everything else. And, yeah, the the effects around the alien are really good. Um, the use of um, the 3D... I think is really good because it's very, um, like subtle. It's not the kind of in the face, right. Or even the kind of like throw things at the camera thing that like house of wax would do. It never feels like it's drawing attention to itself. Yeah. Um, It feels like it would be just a natural enhancement of what's going on rather than the point. Yeah. Um, I also think that Jack Arnold builds a lot of really good atmosphere and tension in this movie. 
Um, you know, one of the reasons why this succeeds as a horror movie is because it's able to really, like, ratchet up the suspense, you know, to the point where, like, you can get really good, like, jump scares and stuff throughout this film, right? Yeah, and he's further supporting the uh, dry ice company that Universal owns on the side. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not to, not to like, a, a huge degree. But it's nice to still see it here, you know? <laughs> sure. Like, you have it from the crater coming up, but you also have it when people are engulfed with the gaseous form of the alien. Yeah, I think the, um... The effects are pretty top-notch for the most part, like, as we've said with the alien effects. I do think that, so when the ship crashes at the start of the movie, the big, like, shot of that sequence is the ship coming right at the camera and then exploding. And obviously that's like a big 3D gimmick shot. I think, unfortunately, it is like the jankiest shot in the movie because it's just like... It just looks like a... Um, ping pong with sparklers all Yeah, it looks like it. a ping pong ball that they stuffed full of, like, firecrackers and hung from a string and, like, swung into the camera, right? Yeah, and it happens very quickly, so um, it looks like there might be a dorsal fin on the ship, or that could just be where they've connected the string to yeah. it. Yeah. You can't tell, um, and I tried to look when, like, the ship takes off and you don't get a close enough view to see if it has a dorsal fin or not, so... I think because of all the light mm-hmm. coming off of the ship as it like is coming towards you and explodes, I think that's why they couldn't quite hide the string. It's it's not like a terrible shot. Um, it's it, you know it's perfectly effective and it's very exciting um, and very cool. It's just a little hokey looking compared to yeah. the rest of the movie. Uh, the movie has a really good score with lots and lots of theremin. And yeah, there as we kind of mentioned in the plot summary. There were times where the theremin was almost like either diegetic or, hey, the alien is coming. It wasn't a constant thing. What was kind of neat is before the ship crashes, the score that we hear is done with like violins and a traditional orchestra. But then as soon as the ship goes through the sky and crashes, that theme is overtaken by the theremin. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just kind of a neat thing about, like, you know, science fiction fully infiltrating this, like, lazy little town. Yeah. Comparing the film to, like, Man from Planet X, um, I think Man from Planet X has, like, a a weirder, spookier atmosphere than this movie. Yeah, I think because it's, like, more traditionally horror. You know, you're on the moors, you've got the smoke and fog and whatever, and, like, the weird townsfolk. Sure. Um, The, like, shut-up professor with his daughter or whatever the fuck. Well, and just, like, the the, the odd landscape in that movie and stuff. But, like, also that film has a little more moral ambiguity Mm -hmm. than this movie with, like, the, the scientist character who kind of, like, is against the aliens and therefore he's a bad guy, but maybe he's also a good, you know what I mean? Like the, 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 the role of the aliens was more like morally ambiguous, but the aliens here have like a much more understandable and like logical motivation. You know, they, they, they kind of are the most logically motivated aliens of like any of these movies because they're not like, Oh, we're here to, conquer this whole planet with like the five of us and our one ray gun but they're also not like you know hey we are superior 
angelic beings from space heaven come to tell you that your puny race is not worthy of us. Like, they're just a bunch of dudes. Like, essentially from their perspective, they came down with a flat tire on Earth, and they just want to, like, get their tire replaced and get on their way, right? Like, and everything else that they do is just motivated from that. I did like that there was still room in It Came From Outer Space for it to have that, like, philosophy that mm-hmm. um, Bradbury wanted in here. So this is after John has come back from seeing Alien Ellen the first time and tells the sheriff, like, hey, we need to give them time. And the sheriff's like, yeah, but why don't they just come out and tell us? And so John tries to explain that, like, they are so alien that we can't really comprehend it. Mm-hmm. And he points to a spider on the ground, and he's like, now, if you were confronted with, like, a whole bunch of these little spiders, you know, that's trying to kill you, what would you do? And the sheriff steps on it. And John's like, see, you'd just kill it, rather than let them just, like, leave and leave you alone. So chill out, sheriff. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, the um, the the thematic stuff going on here is is, you know... John, the creative, intelligent, you know, thinks-for-himself writer versus the, like, small-town, shoot-first-ask-questions-later sheriff and the idea of fear of the unknown versus, like, giving the unknown a chance. Um, And these are all themes we've kind of seen versions of in previous movies. Um, The thing I appreciated here is that this debate is separate from, like, the aliens themselves. Like, the aliens are definitely going to take some people hostage. They might even kill some people if they have to. It's not about they're either monsters or they're saints. Like, they're just trying to not be on Earth because they didn't mean to come here, right? Yeah. And that's all there is to it. And they're so different from what we look like that they know that, like, we if we saw them, we would just freak out and attack them, right? Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of good traditional sci-fi themes, for sure, mm-hmm. going on here. And I think for horror themes, the movie plays the aliens as horror monsters, you know, throughout. They're always kind of portrayed as being, like, scary and weird And even when they're assuming human form, they're, like, weird and strange and off-putting. Yeah, they're still in that uncanny valley of what is human. Right, which I think really helps underline the movie's themes as well, because when you're trying to insist, like, oh, humans are afraid of the unknown, and, like, we attack what we don't understand, it, it plays a lot better here than even in, like, Day the Earth Stood Still, where they shoot Klaatu, because, like, in Day the Earth Stood Still, he's, like, a human dude who looks exactly like a person who, like, comes out of his spaceship and, like, pulls out, like, a, you know, space vibrator and gets <laughs> shot, right? Because some guy's like, oh, uh, he has a weapon, right? And it's, it's, I mean, you buy it, but, like, he's the least threatening alien who ever came to Earth, right? Whereas, like, these guys, yeah, like, I don't care what they're saying. If I saw one of these things coming at me, yeah, I absolutely... You know? Yeah, like imagine you saw those green toothy aliens from The Simpsons. Right. Coming at you. Yeah. I'd, I'd shoot it. Yeah. So while Man from Planet X has like 
some stuff it does better with its atmosphere and with its weirdness and spookiness and moral ambiguity. I think the things that It Came From Outer Space does better is a much more logical presentation of the alien, a much better alien design, and a much clearer statement of its themes. I think even the paranoia was done really well here. Um, like you, you, just with like the sheriff freaking out at alien George there in that one scene, like I Mm -hmm. think that was really well done. Yeah. They both do a similar thing with, um, the townspeople in, in man from planet exits that the aliens can mind control them. And so they're taking people from the town to repair the ship. And here it's, they can assume their forms, but they're also whoever's form they're assuming they're taking as like hostages. Yes. You don't have like two two of of them. them. Yeah. The thing that kind of lets me down with this movie is the script and the cast. You know, with the cast, like, the sheriff and John definitely did probably the best work here, but it's not really standout. It's not revolutionary. It's like, it's doing it, but okay. You know, for me, the best performance in the whole cast, in the whole movie, is actually, um... Russell Johnson, when he's in the first scene where the telephone linemen have been taken over by aliens and they're talking to them out in the desert and uh, John thinks one of them has been killed, right? So Russell Johnson's playing the alien playing his human character, right? right? Yeah, and that's the best performance in the movie, in my opinion. The problem with everybody else is that all of these characters are like, completely one note. Yeah. Right? Richard Carlson's putting a lot into making John appear, like, desperate and frazzled, but there's not a lot to really hang on to John Putnam. He's He writes articles and lives in a house in the middle of the desert, is an amateur astronomer, and according to the sheriff, like, nobody in town likes him because he's different new. and new and thinks for himself. But we also don't really see... Any of that. Right. Like, the only people we see John interact with other than the sheriff and Ellen are the telephone repair guys, and they're, like, super friendly. Yeah. It's like, hey, how's it going, John? And the reason why the sheriff is already a little cold towards him is because he's his romantic rival. Yes, for Ellen. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's kind of hard to get a sense of, like, how we're supposed to be reacting to John. And John himself, like, as a character... There's just not a lot here. Like, he mm-hmm. he doesn't like the fact that nobody believes him. But he's also never really willing to, like, explain himself well to people. He just wants them to, like, immediately believe him or come with him for him to show them a thing that by the time they get there isn't there. Yeah. Right? Rather than, like, explaining things to people. And I feel like if the aliens had also just explained in the first place, like, like when John first confronts them. Right. Like, we're just preparing our ship. We'll be gone in a day. Yeah. Chill. Yeah. It's it's definitely got that, like, B-movie problem of, like... Driving everywhere. Yeah, where most of the story is taken up by people going back and forth between two locations. In this case, the town or the desert. <laughs> yeah. Um, they do have some cool driving shots. Like, we they were like, hey, we got a helicopter. Let's use it. Yeah. Um, so there are some cool stuff with that. And, I mean, the landscape is pretty cool you are able to tell whenever they are, like, suddenly on a set. But they're on location for, like, a lot of it. Yeah, which is nice. It's just that, like, like Ellen 
Ellen's personality trait is that she supports John, right? Yeah. The sheriff's personality trait is that he... He doesn't support John. Right, exactly. You know, everybody else is a plot point. Like, there's there's not a lot here. And then, as you kind of point out in the plot summary, like, characters just do things sometimes. Like, instead of going about things the most, like, logical way, they'll do things because that's what the script needs them to do at that time. Yeah, which is surprising given that, like... I mean, it had the treatment from Ray Bradbury, and then it had another guy come in and write the screenplay version of it. I don't know. I feel like enough people put their hands on it that it should have been something a little better. Yeah, we know that Bradbury's a good writer. (laughs) Like, that's evidenced. So, you know, the thing I have to conclude here is, like, it's tough because Bradbury wrote the story. But the story is just Man from Planet X. (laughs) And then Henry Essex came in and did the dialogue, and the dialogue's terrible. The dialogue's, like, exactly that kind of, um, like, weird, declarative, yet empty, like, non-speak that gets gets parodied when you see people make fun of old 50s sci-fi movies, right? Like, where people just sort of say things that, in terms of their, like tone or intensity don't really match like what would be appropriate for that scene like someone saying like those fools and then like someone else replying to them being like oh well you know they're just scared oh well you're probably right dear like you know like people just like emotions not really tracking through scenes yeah as and and dialogue that just sort of sounds almost like written on autopilot. Like, all of the lines of dialogue in this movie feel like placeholder dialogue. You know, that's waiting for another draft to come in and turn it into something that sounds like real speech. Yeah. And there's, you know, the final line from John that's basically just your standard, you know, keep watching the stars line. Like, a lot of this feels really formulaic, really paint-by-numbers, at least in terms of the dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I think paint by numbers is a great way to describe it, which is strange because we've only seen three of these so far. Right. right? Um, But that's exactly what it is. Like, the only thing that is really making this exciting, for me at least, is the way that the atmosphere and tension is controlled and the alien design. Yeah, the the movie making around this is good. But, like you really get the feeling that, like, in lesser hands, this would have been bleh. Yeah. The thing that elevates it, really, is just, like, the fact that Universal put some money into this, and and they, and they were kind of forced to put some money into this, because, you know, they're doing something, at least for them, that's different, and that means they can't, you know, we're, we're not in vaguely historical Europe anymore where we don't have castles we don't have sets that are just pumped full of uh dry ice you know we we have to be in contemporary America we're not yeah trash those sets build some new ones right we have to go out to the desert and get location shots we have to you know we're doing totally new things it's a spaceship so we can't just reuse the Frankenstein sets or whatever, right? We have to build this alien out of nothing. We can't reuse the Wolfman score for the millionth time. (laughs) Put some new fucking music in a movie for once. You know what would be funny? If, uh, 
It was. It actually was the Wolfman soundtrack, but with theremin. Sure. <laughs> I I think just like the thing that makes this movie feel refreshing is that it's Universal doing something that's new for Universal. Yeah. And they're putting a lot of like good. They're putting their best foot forward, you know, in doing that. And so they're doing a really good job of doing a movie that is, like I said at the top, kind of formulaic and hokey but it is still in some ways the universal formula absolutely because it's still sympathetic monsters and angry village mobs right yeah and um intellectual trying to like balance the two Mm -hmm. the one thing that is i think a major hurdle of the location shooting in the desert is that they have to always be shooting in the day yeah, it was really hard to tell how time yes. moved. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it hurts the storytelling because not only am I not sure when it's supposed to be day and, or when it's supposed to be night, because like if there are scenes in this movie that are supposed to be day for night, it's hard to... It just to... looks like day. Well, yeah, because in order to have... They're in the desert. There's so much light. Yeah, like there's no cloud cover. You're in the desert. The sun's out. And, you know, you can't haul lights out to the middle of the desert. No. So you have to shoot in the day. And because you're not sure when it's day and when it's night, it's really unclear, like, how much time is passing over the course of this story. Yeah, Like, did this all happen in a day? Did this all happen in an afternoon? Was it over a couple of days? Who knows? Yeah, I think it was over, like, a day and a half. Yeah. Like, just thinking about the way people are describing, like, chain of events, but Mm -hmm. it is not clear. Yeah. Well... I'm ready to move on to ranking if you are. Yeah. Um, This movie, yes, is derivative of Man for Planet X. There are some things that I think it did better. And I think it does horror very well. Um, So it's definitely going on the list. Yes. And I'm, like I said, I'm very impressed with the the creature, the alien. Um, It it was like, whoa, for me. So it was just like not what I was expecting at all. This is a very cool movie. You should go watch it. The stuff that we've complained about is stuff that, like, is going to be fun for you. Because it's it's going to be, like I said, exactly that 50s B-movie you want it to be. Yeah. So, Sarah, speaking of Man from Planet X, uh, that's where I started looking to mm-hmm. try and orient my range. That makes sense. It's at 67. I agree with you. There are things this movie does better, and there are things that I like more in Man from Planet X. So... I started by kind of working my way below Man from Planet X. Like, what's under here that could be better than it came from outer space? Uh, And we have stuff like Murders in the Room Morgue, you know, here. And interesting movies like The Vampire's Ghost. (laughs) Or uh, The Soul of a Monster, which is like a very interesting movie. I like how you're saying interesting, like, as if there's, like, air quotes around it. And then it... um, Number 74, there's the uh, 1935 version of Student of Prague. And I think It Came From Outer Space is better than that. Uh, It's not as derivative as, you know, the second remake of Student of Prague. And it's... um, Isn't that the third? It's the third movie of Student of Prague, which makes it the second remake. Uh, right? Because you'd have a, yeah, yeah, a, a yeah, yeah, make, yeah, yeah. a remake, and a re-remake. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it goes, for me, above that film. Uh, you know, 
it's doing cool new things that that movie isn't doing. So I made my floor number 74. That's the lowest I'd put it. Okay. Working my way back up and seeing what's above Man from Planet X, uh, I ended up working my way up pretty high, and I ended up with kind of a big range. Okay. Because I kept kind of going, well, this could be better than that. Uh, you know, like, you, you look up and you're like, well, you know, this could be better than Strangler of the Swamp, or this could be better than Captive Wild Woman. You know, and then you, you hit the 40s and it's like, maybe this is better than Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And where I finally sort of topped out was at uh, number 44, The Amazing Mr. X. That feels like almost quality-wise really equivalent to this. Um, but obviously, like, this has some really creative stuff going on with the aliens and the special effects. That movie has some really creative stuff going on with the cinematography. Right above Amazing Mr. X is The Black Room, which has way better acting than this movie. <laughs> so my ceiling, the highest I would put this movie, was 44. You realize that's a range of 30 spots. Yes. Okay. So 44 to 74 is where I ended up. The, the list is getting long, Sarah, and so the ranges are getting long. Uh, where were you looking? Well, I also looked at Man from Planet X at 67. I don't know. That was science fiction with horror tools. This is horror science fiction. Sure. So I feel like already it's going to go above 67 for me. It's not just trying to be derivative. It's Well, okay, let me rephrase that. It's not just going, oh, science fiction's the new big thing. I guess we'll do science fiction. Like, they hired a science fiction guy mm -hmm. to write it, mm -hmm. um, or at least the treatment for it. Like, they were putting in some effort. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then as I worked my way up, I was hitting this, this does seem like a problem area of the list, um, this area of, like, the 50s, basically, mm -hmm. where it's, like, a mishmash. Where it's... It's it's because you, you start to get into this area of, like, good movies that aren't good enough and bad movies that we liked a lot, right? Like, where that yeah. starts to, like, overlap. Like, Valley of the Zombies is this high because it's super enjoyable to watch, you know, whereas The Hands of Orlac is this low because, like, it's paced really weird, right? So you get this yeah. weird overlap of good and bad movies. So, because um, I was thinking about, you know, this is Universal doing something new, my eyes were also drawn to Le Loup de Melvenure at 51, right. where it was like the French trying to do a Universal movie. And that was, that's a very interesting film in how it d tries to do horror as well as the, like, Sherlock Holmes Universal stuff. Yeah, it's... Uh, but I think, like, because Universal is trying to do something new and it still feels like a Universal film, I was feeling a bit above 51. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of made my way up to <laughs> The Amazing Mr. X. Right, because you hit, like... <laughs> Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and Night Monster and House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein. You're like, well, those are all crap. And you just kind of skip them <laughs> and you end up up at like 44, right? Yeah. I mean, like looking above uh, The Amazing Mr. X, there are some things that I think would be kind of interesting to compare this to. But the highest I would ever go is like 38 with Son of Dracula, Freaks, The Double Commands. I think that you could make the case that it came from outer spaces like on par with some of those. But the ones above that from, like, 37 up, there's, I don't know, I don't know, this whole area is kind of a mishmash, isn't it? A little bit. 
But, okay, so I'm, I'm just going to say, if we think about how this movie, like, buys itself. Mm-hmm. You know, some of these movies, like, 34's Dead of Night, it tries to, like, be like, ho ho, but we're just having fun here with that one golf story. Um, and, like, try to not take itself seriously. The Devil Commands takes it seriously, despite everything. The Man That Could Not Hang takes it seriously. Um, and The Black Room takes it very seriously. Um, and is a, a fantastic movie. Um, it came from outer space, I feel like, because it is so formulaic, paint-by-numbers, whatever. I don't get the sense of their conviction in the same way that I do from, say, The Black Room. I'm not saying it doesn't have conviction. I'm just saying it through clear, as clearly as some of the other movies we've seen. Like, even House of Wax. It Came From Outer Space is a movie that is better than it should be based on, like, its script. Absolutely. Right? Um, I don't know... So if you compare that to stuff like the Monster Rally movies, which we all just have, like bunched up here from 45 <laughs> to 47 like what's better a movie that's I, I like i guess that has to put it above those because like it came from outer space is a movie that's better than it should be and the monster rally movies are movies that are not as good as you want them to be yeah right? you know i honestly feel like at 45 above house of dracula below the amazing mr x that feels like the right spot to me because as you're saying it's above the monster rally movies and it's below like the amazing mr x really like goes for it. There are points where it's like, mm, but like... The Amazing Mr. X has like a lot of really good cinematography to speak for it. And there's good cinematography and it came from outer space as well, but I think the desert setting limits what they can do. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm totally in favor of that placement. Uh, so entering the list at the new number 45, it came from outer space from 1953 directed by Jack Arnold. And this is our 150th Ranked film on the list. What? That's crazy. That's unbelievable. That, that's so many films. Good job, Ben. I mean, there's also all those unranked films. So yeah, we've definitely done a lot of these. I guess um, this past March was also like our third year anniversary doing this. So, mm-hmm. hey, go us. Yeah. <laughs> of, of the few things you can count on in this universe... There's gravity, time, and scream scene. Yes. <laughs> if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our appeals box. You can also reach out to us over email. Let us know if you think we should consider watching a movie we might have skipped over, uh, if we've missed a movie, um, anything like that. Screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also reach out over Twitter at underscore Screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, and you can also subscribe to the show through your podcatcher of choice using our RSS feed. Leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts to help the show get seen by algorithms. Or share us on social media to anyone you feel might enjoy the show. Another way you can help us out is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. If you have the financial means, you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Although patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to special bonus content. 
And if we hit our Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll do a bonus fifth episode every month of a horror-adjacent film. So we could look at some of these 1950s sci-fi monster movies that are less horror and more sci-fi, right? So that's patreon.com slash podcast. Well, Ben, what are we watching next week for our, hopefully, the 151st film on the list? Next week, Sarah, we are watching The Neanderthal Man from 1953. A a uh, true piece of cinema art. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it'll be. Exactly. We'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.